So, Eliana, do you sleep? Not very well, I have to admit. I do suffer a bit from insomnia, and so I'm very curious to learn more about sleep today. Well, today is your lucky day. The science basement. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Tomas. And I'm your co-host, Eleana. And today, we're going to be diving into the realm of sleep. Today, I'd like to introduce Sarah Stefans. She is doing her PhD at the University of Helsinki in the area of sleep. So, hello, Sarah. Hello. Thank you for inviting me today. <laughs> Our pleasure. So, very basic question um, that it, it's actually more complicated than we realize. So what is sleep? <laughs> okay, so I'm pretty sure everybody um, of you knows what sleep is basically. We spend a lot of our lifetime actually being asleep, but there's a lot of different approaches um, how you define sleep. I would say the most commonly known is actually when you when you take this resting phase during during the 24-hour period. Basically, every day you sleep a couple of hours, highly dependent on the individual how long. But each of us is spending some time in this resting phase where most of the time we have a certain sleeping posture, um, we have our eyes closed, and we can also measure the most prominent and the most golden standard basically to measure sleep would then be the electroencephalogram, the EEG, which shows basically your, your brain being asleep with certain yeah, EEG patterns. And what is the what would be the difference between an an awake brain and an a sleeping brain? Because I mean, I can I, I can close my eyes and stay in uh, like rest in bed, but that would that would not necessarily be the same as being asleep. Definitely, that's a good point. So um, you could say that so a common mistake. What what is sleep not? Perhaps first of all is that your brain is inactive because a lot of people think actually that during your sleep your brain is taking a break, not sleep, not not doing anything of of importance, right? And that is exactly the opposite of sleep because basically during sleep the brain is highly synchronized. The cells are more synchronized in their activity patterns as compared to wakefulness. And the um, muscle activity goes goes down. Okay, that can also be when you're just resting on a bed. But um, yeah, so the, the synchronization pattern of your brain looks very differently. And also the brain uses this time to clear basically all the debris that happened, got accumulated during the, the day and basically gets re-energized for the next days, clears, reconsolidates memories, clears out unnecessary memories. And that's basically all not happening when you're just there. And resting. And at which phase during your sleep you reach this synchronization that you mentioned? I assume it doesn't happen from the beginning. Hmm. Um, well, there's two different sleep stages um, in, in all mammals and also as humans, which are known the famous non-REM and REM sleep, the rapid eye movement and the non-REM sleep then. And in both cases, the, the brain, um, the, um, yeah, neuronal pattern is very highly um, synchronized, actually just in different patterns. So during non-REM sleep, it's a more slow oscillation, as you can imagine. So if you imagine really the, the EEG as waves, they are going bigger and slower. So the amplitude is higher and the frequency is slower in simple terms. 
And in non-REM, we have a lower amplitude and a higher frequency. So these are basically two different ways of synchronization. The, the cells are still synchronized, highly synchronized, but just at different frequencies and amplitudes, if you want to. Okay. I'm sorry, Thomas, I'm going to ask something again, because <laughs> I heard a term I wasn't familiar with. You mentioned something like EGS waves, if I remember correct? You know the EEG waves, that's the electroencephalogram, how we, that's how we measure the sleep and the brain waves, basically, yes. Okay, okay. And um, how, like, uh, how do you conduct your research? <laughs> um, so I'm a basic researcher, so I'm not doing research in humans, but in animals. We are using animal models to um, look at the simple patterns of sleep. As you already mentioned, you have insomnia, which is a pretty big pattern, which is known in humans. That's one um, pathological state um, in sleep. But we in basic research are more interested in the very, very fundamental research questions such as how um, does sleep happen? So how does our body know when to sleep? What is basically the sleep homeostasis, which means when does our body know when to go to sleep and when to wake up? When is it enough? And how is it induced at which point of the day so these are the more fundamental questions that we are tackling here with our animal models so i'm having actually um, i'm using the help of mice who help me to understand sleep better and they're um yeah we're, we're working in a laboratory with with model organisms who sleep for us and tell us more about sleep and what's what is the research question that you that you're trying to to address in in broad terms, obviously? Um. <laughs> um, so each of you will know that insufficient sleep um, is quite detrimental. So a day after not sleeping well, you you feel you feel tired. You're not focusing so well. You're not performing as well as, as when you slept slept well. So my research question um, tries to combine this this part of insufficient sleep and what does it mean to the system with what are the cells that are actually um, involved in sleeping. So obviously we have the neurons that make up our brain, but to keep them going, we have also another kind of cells around, another type of cells around, which are the glia cells. I don't know if you heard about them yet, but they are basically behind the neurons in the brain. They are the maintaining system of the brain. They clear out the debris, they take care of the immune system, they take care of the nutrition of the brain. They insulate the, the, the axons of the neurons that are in the brain, all these kind of things. And I'm trying to connect now these two fields, like what does insufficient sleep actually do to the system? What's the harm that's being done? And on the other side, the harm done on, on the system of, of microglia, of glia, of astrocytes. So that's all the three big players in the yellow field are oligodendrocytes, astrocytes, and microglia. And I'm looking at one subtitle of this glial cells and how are they affected by insufficient sleep and how might they actually take care also of sleep homeostasis so maintaining the sleep rhythm that was perhaps a lot at once yes and i i got a bit lost in the information because i'm coming from the physics side uh, of science so i'm not very familiar with all these um biological terms um but i also have a question you said you're you're studying how these are affected but do they also control the sleep patterns and you can also repeat the the term because it's escaping my mind <laughs> okay that's 
actually a brilliant question and that's still not answered yet and that's exactly what we are going for so you you hit the the nail on the head there actually to to repeat your question you asked about hey how are they actually contributing to sleep and that's still the open question because we know what neurons are during sleep and we know also which brain areas are involved in controlling sleep and starting it and maintaining it but the question is, is it actually only neurons or do also other cells that also play a role? They also express certain signaling molecules that influence also neural behavior or they get feedback from neurons when they are, let's say, under stress or they are working for too long already during the day and they would need this, yeah, restored space of, of sleep, basically. So that's exactly the question. How do non-neuronal cells in the brain take take part take place during sleep well that's that's really really cool um can you well maybe some of the listeners might not necessarily know but it's uh as you as you mentioned neurons are not the only cells in the brain do you mind telling us a bit about the roles that that these cells play uh in in broad terms so the neurons are carrying the information but then what do astrocytes and oligodendrocytes and glial cells do? Okay, so perhaps you can think on this level to make it a bit more visual of a, a band. Think of your, your favorite band and they are having a concert. So that would be basically the first thing you hear about when the, your band is coming to your city, that's the band would be the neurons. Yeah, right. So their name is written big on, on the advertisements and everybody knows that they are coming. But now, how is this concert actually conducted? It's not the band going on stage, playing and leaving, right? It leads a lot more to it. It needs a lot of helpers that actually set up the whole stage and they make the sound check and they make they take care that everything is going safely and smoothly and the band gets their drink in their in their break and they get a hotel booked and they get transported to, to the stadium and back. And this is exactly what we have in the brain actually going on with the neurons. They are now the famous band standing on the stage and everybody's looking at them and they are bringing the famous music to us but they wouldn't work so well if they didn't have their helpers involved in the background and here you have the glial cells which are basically then the helpers which are um, microglia oligodendrocytes and astrocytes uh, astrocytes and microglia um, are the ones who take care of the immune system so they basically are involved with injury or um, whenever there's an inflammation ongoing, they are, they are present and they are basically surveying everything. They are basically the, the door standers and looking that nothing bad, nothing that can harm the band comes in. And then there's the astrocytes and they are taking care to basically have the, the nutrition transport ongoing. They, they are the connection between the, the vascular system and the um, yeah, the nutrition, they take care of the, of the nutrition support. And then there's the oligodendrocytes, which are wrapping their little extensions around the axons that are transmitting the information and thereby insulating and making information travel faster. So these are the three big types of caretaker maintenance cells that are unrecognized working in the back, but backstage, <laughs> if you wish. Um, but they are actually getting more attention during the last years. 
Okay, that, was, that is really very interesting. And I have a question because now you mentioned all these different types of cells that control something different at the time. And I am wondering, is it this the reason why when we are sick or when we have eaten something and our stomach is either full or upset and uh, it, the digestive system is overall like upset or we had, uh, as I said, we are sick and we cannot, we don't sleep very well in these occasions. So is this because these cells are particularly active and they don't want to like uh, calm down in a sense um yes and no so you you certainly have heard this already from your grandparents they say when you are sick you need to sleep more you need to sleep yourself healthy right that's what they say and that's actually actually a piece of old wisdom which is not wrong um because a lot of here come microglia coming into the game a lot because they are basically the brain's immune system. They are the local macrophages of the brain. And they take care of a lot of uh, molecular substances that are, that are signaling for inflammation that are basically danger signals, right? And they can access, like they can, they can produce them, but they can also sense them when they are around in the environment caused by injury, caused by bacteria, virus, you name it. And now the, the, the fun fact at this point is that a lot of these um, transmitters and a lot of these bio factors are also used and recycled in the sleep homeostasis system, which means more of them also, a lot of them in different amounts are actually also healthy and they help us to regulate our daily sleep. So this is what naturally brings then the question along, okay, they, they excrete these factors that are that are causing inflammation and that are regulating inflammation, but the same factors can also be recycled then in the homeostasis of sleep. And we want to understand better how, how that really works. I was just wondering, so like mice are used for research quite a bit and as a, as a model organism. In terms of sleep, what similarities and what differences do they have with, uh, with humans? Because I mean, they're, they're mammals as well, but... Um... They, they're different in many things and similar in many things, so. Yeah, they, they are no humans, right? They're still a model organism. So I think the, the most obvious that you can also observe um, in everyday life, mites are nocturnal. That means they are awake when we sleep and they are sleeping when we are awake. So they have the light phase of the day actually as they are sleeping phase and vice versa. So that's- Like my brother. <laughs> yeah, that's like some humans do too, right? <laughs> I would include my brother there too. So um, that's that's certainly one thing. And then also we already mentioned earlier that there's the, the sleep phases in humans and as they are in mice, there's non-REM and REM sleep. And in humans, these circles, so we, we go through these phases, we go when we fall asleep to non-REM sleep. And then the more tired we are, the, the bigger the sleep pressure is, the quicker we go to REM sleep. And then it starts over from non-REM to REM. And this is in, in humans, it's about one and a half hours to get through one cycle before we start the next. And in mice, this is a lot quicker. So they are within 10, 12 minutes, they are through, through the cycle actually already. And they are then naturally, of course, very, very much shorter. So a REM, REM circle in mice can take less than a minute, few minutes only. Um, yeah, so that I would say are big differences. But then on the other side, similarities, I mean, we have REM and non-REM sleep, even though it's a bit, it looks a bit different in humans, it already looks a bit different in rats compared to mice, but they are the sleep phases and 
also the fact that sleep is highly preserved and and very yeah um, important in the sense that when you don't sleep enough that's the same in humans as well as in mice when you don't sleep enough you have certain um, periods of so-called rebound sleep which you know when you didn't sleep much this night then probably you will sleep a bit more the next night or at latest the weekend then to catch up a bit mice have that as well that is very interesting and now i have a question i'm curious about because it's often circulating that you can't replace the sleep you lost so if you don't sleep enough the one day and you sleep more the next day it doesn't mean you will compensate for the uh, sleep you lost before but now you said that uh, actually uh, you might not sleep enough today but you might sleep more during the weekend and that can be enough so um, is it a myth then that you do not compensate for the sleep Yes and no. Um, yes, it is a myth in terms of your your body um, accumulates sleep pressure. So this is this is not a myth. Um, this happens. And then, as said, when you sleep less this night, let's say you're traveling, you're going out with friends, you're you're well entertained. So you just choose to sleep four hours, and the next night you sleep more. I think we all know this from our own experience. But then on the other side, it's not a myth in terms of let's let's say you don't you don't catch up your sleep at the weekend but you're let's say parent of a young child and you do this for years and years and you don't sleep much at some point it gets detrimental as at the point where it's really getting a chronic um yeah pathologic state where you are not sleeping enough for for years or decades then then this is true then it's it's hard to catch up with that um and just um just as a brief question what is uh sleep pressure that you you've mentioned it a couple of times and uh it uh it might be a new term for for some people this would be so much easier if i could share my screen and show show you and draw something here um so basically how how does the body knows how does the brain better know that it's sleeping time so during our during the state of wakefulness we are accumulating certain substances in our brain in certain brain areas that are accumulating during the time being awake. So the longer you are awake, the more you accumulate of this substance. And at some point, it's basically you fill the barrel that you have and then you go to sleep. The brain knows that it's sleeping time. And um, yeah, so this is definitely in very simple terms now explained how, how sleep pressure on a molecular basis would work. And then you have the second component, which is, you might have heard of the circadian component, which circadian means circa 24 hours, so more or less a day, which is this rhythm that we have in us, which plants have, mammals, all kind of, of living beings actually have, which gives you this more or less 24-hour rhythm. So this basically also comes along with an innate clock, which tells you when your sleeping time is. So in case of your brother, this is a bit later than in some other people who might get tired early and also get up earlier. But these two, basically the inner clock, which tells you, hey, it's evening, it's sleeping time, which also gets disrupted then when you have a jet lag and you're traveling, let's say to Costa Rica. And then you have the um, molecules that get accumulated and they also tell you, hey, it's sleeping time. And there can be actually even a slight disturbance between these. I mean, you will also know you've been partying, you're out all night. And then at some point at midnight, you might get tired and you feel a bit like, oh, do I go with the people to the next club or the next bar or do I leave it and I go home? But then when you get over this point, 
you get awake again and you're you're getting the energy back and you feel like doing things again and at some point you get tired again so this is also part of the circadian rhythm then that goes up and down and the same goes in the afternoon after lunch you feel tired at some point of the day you feel like you need a coffee and then you get your coffee you relax a bit and you get going again so these are basically the two rhythms that is an awesome point because it's exactly what i experience quite often uh, not with clubbing unfortunately uh, but with work because uh, i have a, sometimes an overload of work and that has to be done and then as you described it i reach to the point where i'm totally exhausted and i can't think but i am like you have to finish this work continue working and so then i reach to the point where it doesn't affect me anymore and uh, I can go then for hours and hours and hours. And before I know it, it's 5 a.m. Uh, and then I'm questioning, do I sleep now or do I continue? So, yeah. Story of a researcher's life and Corona doesn't make that better, right? <laughs> Not at all. Okay, now going to what you say, like Corona times, for me, it has affected me in a very strange way, because in a sense, I'm very happy I'm working from home, because I feel more comfortable when I am alone, or when I have some a noise that will not uh, be interesting to me, like at a cafe, I can also work, but in the office, I'm not as productive as I would have liked. So I have no problem working from home, but it totally threw me off as to what home is. So home now is work and it's not uh, sleep or relax or eat it's so yeah that probably has an effect on on my sleeping patterns that as well and then I would say what also comes into the game you have probably not a home that's like two stories and you can change the room whenever you need you have one where you only do yoga and one where you only eat and then where you only sleep so there's a concept called sleep hygiene, which is very basically explaining, okay, how do we sleep better? How can you with easy steps perhaps make you sleep better? And there, one of the biggest points is actually try to separate always work and stressful moments of your everyday life from, from the place where you are sleeping, which means don't, don't answer work emails from your bed, don't work in your bed, don't, don't read um, reviews or don't don't read papers or don't don't prepare presentations in your bed right that's the theory but of course it makes it harder in corona times that you can't really separate these yeah so. if people could see us now me and Thomas, we are smiling in the background <laughs> because it's exactly what we are doing right like i take my laptop with me on the bed and i'm like ah let's uh, run this code let's answer this email or the moment i wake up the first thing is like did i got any important email while i, while I was sleeping so yeah we need to we need yeah, to i could work. see your face of guilt yeah, <laughs> my face of guilt exactly no i should uh, learn to apply this uh, sleep hygiene i i should investigate more on that it's little things but then it's also not so easy because we have we have topics or we have like work-related stuff that's easy like just reading emails just running a code that's in the background you can basically watch netflix along or listen to music or something but yeah it's already actually crossing a line which you shouldn't and yeah it can already also be actually good for insomniac people if, i mean that's very simple steps and probably it won't cure the thing but it's a step in a direction which might help no indeed yeah I'm changing the direction of the discussion a little bit because i have a, a curious question in my mind um what about people who sleepwalk 
uh, what kind of phase in their sleep are they? Um, is it through the study you're making, can you tell what's affecting and uh, why some people are sleepwalking? And also, I know from my experience, I wasn't aware of what was going on when I woke up, but I have been caught sleepwalking. And the situation is that I was fully aware from the environment around me. Uh, and like I, the story, I, I like to share stories. So I'm sorry, Sarah, about that. So the story <laughs> goes like that. Uh, one night, my parents heard noises coming from my bedroom, like things were falling down. So they came in and they found me having climbed on my bookcase and throwing books down. And my mom says, what are you doing there? And I was like, I'm searching for something. And she's like, okay, okay, just put everything back. Don't make the, don't leave the mess behind. And so she went to sleep. She woke up in the morning. She came to kiss me goodbye because she was going to work. And she said, did you find what you were looking for last night? And I was like, no, what are you talking about? I wasn't looking for anything. She's like, you threw all the books on the floor. Then you put them back. You said you were searching something. And I was like, maybe you dreamt it. And she's like, it can't be that both me and your father dreamt it. You were probably sleepwalking. And it was very impressive to us that I put everything back in the exact place as if nothing ever happened. So I wonder like, what does it happen with the neurons and the cells you were mentioning? And do they, they have a, a, a role in all this weird situation? So that's a very impressive story, especially the part that you put the books all back and you didn't even remember. Very, very cool. And good that you didn't fall off there. I mean, I don't know how old you were, but better don't fall over with the book. I was around right? 13 years old, so not that young, but not that old either. I mean, I would have been more concerned of the you coming with the bookshelf down um, rather than just you falling no, it, down. It's, it's but, built um... in, so it was pretty safe. Uh, that wouldn't happen. Uh, okay, no, okay. yeah. Maybe the book's falling on me, but that's, that's yeah, luckily yeah, didn't okay. happen. <laughs> I think IKEA might consider putting this in their, in their idiot proof in, in like instructions. Definitely fix your bookshelves to the wall because you might sleepwalk climb on them. Yeah. Good point. Um, yeah, but perhaps back to the sleep part of it. So um, as we discussed at the very beginning, sleep is defined by a body posture and by closed eyes. And one, one thing that I should have also mentioned, the sensory input that you get from outside, that's also kind of shut off, or at least the threshold is much higher to, to receive um, input from outside. I mean, for instance, my boyfriend, he can sleep when, when, when things are falling over, I could smash a pot on the floor and he would just sleep over it. So other people are perhaps a little bit more sensitive and they wake up earlier. But um, coming back to the sleepwalking, um, so what usually happens during sleep, I mean, we all know that we are also dreaming. Um, and what happens, what, might, what would happen if we, if we didn't have a mechanism to prevent it when you're, when you're running in your sleep or when you're, when you're performing jumps or, or hitting something, defending yourself when you're fighting in one of your nightmares, would be very inconvenient when you're sharing the bed with someone or to to get injured yourself when you're punching into the wall. So we have this mechanism that the, the muscles are actually paralyzed during sleep. So you, you're not moving out everything. Of course, during non-REM non sleep, for instance, the muscles are not paralyzed that much. So you can twitch and you can turn over and all these things. But during REM sleep, which is more connected actually with the dreams and especially with the with the weird dreams, the ones, you know, where you're flying and there are dragons or you can can 
performatic or there's something threatening. So during this phase of the sleep, the muscles are paralyzed. That exactly this doesn't happen, that you don't do things. But then there can, of course, always be, especially during actually teenage, I think there's still a lot of yeah, settings that need to come in place, that need to be fixed. And then little glitches can happen, such as you dream something. And in your dream, you, you want to find this one book, which is on the very top shelf, but your muscles aren't paralyzed perfectly. So this is also with your what you're doing when you're sleepwalking, you're kind of more acting out what you're dreaming and you kind of have a limited input. You can even have your eyes open and you kind of get what's around. You can also speak and answer questions that later you won't even remember, which can be then fun for people who are interacting with you. Not so much for you probably, but yeah. So it's not necessarily dangerous. Of course, it, you might consider seeing somebody about it when you have it more often or when you try to climb off a window or do something more threatening or imagine you're dreaming you're flying and then you you want to like uh, you open the window and you think you're peter pan suddenly and then you fly off the window that's dangerous yeah <laughs> and also i mean i'm i'm not entirely sure how well the sleep quality is because it's also said that when you're sleeping well and you have yeah all 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 settings properly set after after your puberty especially and when you're really sleeping well you should not act it out like this because that also means that your sleep isn't actually deep enough and some other things might be not in order but as said when you have it during your puberty a couple of times or also as a grown-up when it happens okay as long as you don't injure yourself or others but yeah if it should happen more often see somebody about it <laughs> yeah yeah it's is this the opposite then of lucid dreaming? Of uh... Well, that's, I wouldn't say the opposite, but lucid dreaming for people who are perhaps not familiar with the term, it means that you're staying in control. That means you're aware of what you're dreaming. I just realized that I meant sleep paralysis, but. Ah, <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so yeah, there's, there's two phenomena. So there's one which is lucid dreaming, which is basically you maintain um, control in your dreams. You are able to fight the demons. You, you can choose basically depending on how good you are. Um, you, can, you can choose what you're dreaming. Even. You can, can wish for, hey, it's Corona. I haven't been traveling for so long. I want to I go to this place and I want to scroll through the streets of Rome. But that's when you miss the plane in your dream, right? Because it's the, the hard reality <laughs> that says, you want to go somewhere? I'm sorry. <laughs> you, yeah, you forgot your luggage, you missed your flight, you took the wrong flight, all these things that rather likely happen for the most of us, right? Yeah, but that is then lucid dreaming, which basically allows you to, to stir your dream, to, to take over control or to even decide what you want to dream. And then another thing that Thomas now mentioned is sleep paralysis, which is more the opposite of sleepwalking which means in sleepwalking the muscles aren't paralyzed at points where they should um, and in sleep paralysis it's the phenomena when you wake up and all your muscles are paralyzed which is a very scary thought and a very scary phenomena of course um, there are people who suffer from this and it must be very threatening because then you're basically bound to your bed and you wish to move but you cannot you cannot leave the bed you cannot turn over you can't lift your hand all these things and usually it doesn't take too long not longer than a couple of minutes but it actually feels apparently to the people who experience it very long of course it's threatening and it often comes annoyingly enough 
um, combined with a feeling of being observed, of being threatened by something, which was, of course, the worst combination you can have because you're there, you can't move. And there's actually even famous like paintings from the medieval where people have been experiencing this and then explaining that there must be a demon in the room and they had some out of body experience with something ring out with so the topic is older than one might think, but yes, that does exist as well. But I heard that it's, or I, I've been in a conference hearing, hearing that it was actually more, it can be also a symptom of stress when you're completely, when you're very stressed and you're suppressing a lot. This might be one of, one of the reasons, might be. All this sounds very interesting and I'm curious, through your research and during your studies, have you noticed this kind of uh, phenomena, like sleep phenomena, I don't know how to properly term them, uh, but with with the mice, uh, like did, did you ever notice them like sleepwalking or or having like this uh, uh, scared look that they want to move, but they feel like they, they can't, so uh, yeah. Well, it's hard to assess these kind of phenomena in mice because the way we are measuring sleep is we use an EEG, we use the body temperatures, we look at muscle activity and then it's really hard to tell if your mouse is experiencing fear or can't move and as i said it's it's also very stress related especially the the sleep um, paralysis part and mice usually don't get stressed in that way that they would experience they express stress in different ways and for sleepwalking very unlikely because also most of the time they are moving they are awake and it's not that they clearly express non-REM sleep and then they, oh, it's it's very unlikely we would rather score it than as being awake for the mice than sleepwalking so i think these are more human pathological states of sleep or or yeah happenings that don't really happen in animals that way sarah can i ask you a final question what is the most interesting thing you discover during your research oh that's a big question um okay let's put it into simple terms so you know that i'm looking at microglia and i was interested that was the the first question how do microglia are how, how are they impacted by insufficient sleep or how might they play a role in insufficient sleep on the other hand and when i when i was trying to answer this question I had to take different samples at different day times with their controls because as a sleep researcher, we are always a bit obsessed of, okay, we need to make sure that the samples we take always are taken at the same time of the day because I told you about the circadian rhythm and different things are different at different day times, hormones especially and a lot of other things. So I had samples taken at different times of the day. And when I looked actually only at my controlled samples, I figured out that they looked different from each other. And the difference, the only difference there was that they were sampled at different day times. So my project went with a branch in the new direction of how do microglia actually change within 24 hours, which in within a diurnal, which in within within a daytime. So that brought me to, to a second branch actually of my project, which I'm writing together a manuscript at the moment. So still work in progress. Good luck with that. Thank you. I find it a really cool topic and something that people haven't been doing on the level that I'm doing, namely looking at the morphological shape. So how the cells look and how the, this changes then throughout the day. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and I, I, <laughs> I find it really fascinating because it's a bit as, as you like, 
to tell a story, right? Uh, we were looking at this one thing and then this other thing happened and we thought, oh, that's really odd. Let's look at this. And then, yeah, we came up with an idea for a new paper. So I hope that it works out this way. I'm crossing my fingers here. Fingers crossed. Thank you. All the luck in the world, yeah. I personally am really fond of uh, of microscopies and like morphological studies. A, a supervisor that I had some, summed it up as seeing is believing. Yeah, there's something of images and like especially like microscope mm. images that it's just they're fascinating so yeah absolutely they they literally they reveal the brain so you can really look at it and when you can tell and microglia actually we didn't have the time to go into this but their morphology tells a lot about their physiological state so it tells a lot about their functions that they are performing at the moment and yeah i find this it's it's literally a very beautiful study because the images are very beautiful. If I could share them here with you, I would certainly do. But so you just have to believe um, they are really. Yeah, beautiful. yeah. When you have the paper, we'll link it to the to the podcast so people can read it. <laughs> Why not? Yes, that's also a good example for uh, young people who aspire to be scientists, but also everyone who aspires to do something in their life. And then there might be a point where you start with something, something, and through that you discover a whole new set of pathways you can follow. And it's this excitement I always have in science that I start with one thing and I end up with so many more because of the curiosity and all the potential we have to learn. Uh, by investigating all these new things. So it's it's a very good example, uh, your experience, Sarah. You never know where, where the road will, will take you. Amen <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. to that. <laughs> I think that we're running out of time. So before, before we go, though, Eliana, would you care to show us the fun fact of the week? Sure, I can. And I know exactly what the fun fact should be. Um, it's about Pluto. So we all have seen the beautiful photo of the heart-shaped feature on the on Pluto's surface. Uh, so this feature, which has the shape of a heart, it actually uh, acts also uh, in a beating rhythm. So it's like a beating heart. And uh, so just a bit of a background. So what is this uh, structure? It's, um, oh, it's a glacier. So it's about a million square mile uh, uh, glacier that uh, consists of nitrogen. And uh, it pulsates in a certain way. This sounds really weird due to having a pulsating heart. Yeah, I mean, it's not an actual heart, but the, the glacier um, moves in a synchronized way, technically. So that can control the local climate. So according to what I've read, this icy uh, heart um, has a, a, a daily rhythmic drum that can drive Pluto's atmosphere and climate in a similar way that Greenland and Antarctica uh, help controlling Earth's climate. And um, it's, as I said, it consists of, of uh, nitrogen in the form of, of ice. And I found it very interesting because it has the shape of a heart. It has a synchronous beating and so it's like a beating heart that is really really cool yeah uh, that would be the topic for a very extravagant book if you wanted to start writing something about this i think go ahead and the people would love it i would definitely read a book about this topic. yeah pluto's yeah. beating heart yeah. although we need to 
remember it's a metaphor of course i mean it, it looks like a heart it behaves like a heart what's the difference really <laughs> i mean i would say and you can you can all measure this from here which is also kind of super cool and i mean it's it's a frozen heart which gives it just the extra touch it's a yeah, frozen yeah. gigantic beating heart which controls its environment yeah and but what makes it beat um like why why does it move is it is it known or so um, it's a, like an everyday cycle uh this uh, nitrogen ice goes through uh where uh due to ice vapor in the daytime uh when the planet is like this, this side of the planet is explo- exposed to sunlight uh vapor uh comes from the ice and then um uh, con- it condenses back on the surface during the nighttime, and uh, that's what's causing, like what we, we it's called, like this beating, um, and what makes this drumming, rhythmic drumming. So it's basically a heartbeat rate of once per day and per night. Y- yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. That would then bring the next question: How long is a day of in Pluto? Oh, that I don't remember. I am ashamed to say so. Let's see. The following comment will be controversial. Don't worry, it's not even a planet. <laughs> I mean... Actually, Pluto is not uh, officially a planet anymore. I know, but loads of people refuse to change. Yeah, so it's 6.4 Earth days. Uh, so one day at Pluto is equal to 6.4 days at Earth. This is really cool, a piece of really cool knowledge, and I'm still... Curious to see a book about this topic. I would read this. Yeah, and another another episode of your podcast. I mean, that would be also very beautiful. <laughs> Maybe we need to find someone who actually studies Pluto then to do that. Thanks for the idea. Actually, that's not bad. Thanks a lot. Really, it was a a lovely conversation, and we can't wait to to hear from your paper. <laughs> Fingers crossed for everyone. So thank you very much. Thanks for this conversation. It was really fun to meet you guys, and great job you're doing here too to bring researchers and everybody interested in research a step closer together. I really, I really think that's an important step and to make it possible by asking questions on a level that, that really make us talk and make us explain and, and, and the concept. So yeah, that was really fun. Thank you. Your compliment is very well appreciated from our side. I can guarantee on that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Have a nice evening. Bye. If you liked this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basements, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.